Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 27th of July, as we record. Today is one of the favourite days of the year for our companies writers, that morning when it feels like almost every FTSE 100 company reports at the same time. With that in mind, we have a bit of a large cap theme this week. We will be discussing Centrica, potentially in the political crosshairs again, following its interim results today. We'll also look at St. James's Place, whose shares have taken a bit of a battering this morning on the back of its own half-year figures. And we'll check in on GSK, which reported yesterday uh, as well. We're also going to be discussing one of the big market success stories of recent years, luxury stocks. That's our cover story this week, encompassing all the big names from continental Europe and taking in another FTSE 100 member, Burberry, as well. Joining me to chat about all of this are Alex Newman. Hi, Dan. How's it going? Very well, thank you. And Mike Fahey. Hi, Mike. Hello, Dan. Jennifer Johnson will be along later on in the show as well. Centrica then. Results today, Mike, you covered them for us on this occasion. Uh, The figures, we'll start with the figures in and of themselves, generally above estimates, better than expected. Yeah, so it's always something of a... A roller coaster when you look at Centrica's figures because of the um, distortion that the energy price cap has. Um, Centrica, obviously, its biggest uh, unit is British Gas. It now supplies about a quarter of UK households. Um, and when you look at the first half of last year, the results looked terrible. It lost just over a billion pounds. Um, and that's it's largely just a, a timing issue with the cap. So last year, after um, Russia had invaded Ukraine, you got this huge run-up in gas prices, but it was still charging the same price to customers until um, governments allowed for subsequent increases in the cap. And those massive spikes, I think the first one was 50%, the second one was about 80% over the course of last year, then meant we were all paying a much higher price um, for our energy. But this year, as gas prices have fallen, the shoe's on the other foot somewhat. And so this year, it's recorded a, a first-half profit at $6.4 billion. Yeah, I suppose the shoe is on the other foot in that regard. But part of the reason these results uh, have been criticised in some quarters is because the price cap is working the other way now for consumers as well, i.e. that cap is still pretty elevated, but Centrica is able to reap the benefits of lower prices itself while everyone else is still paying a high amount. Uh, so in the context of that, you know, uh, these figures, I think, for most of its divisions were, you know, better than expected. Uh, there's a buyback in there as well. Uh, I think it's been increased. Um, is that a, you know, what I'm, you know, getting to here is really, uh, you know, it, as I said at the top, could could this be a situation where politically it's getting a bit sensitive again and, you know, politicians will will want to, you know, uh, have a say on that in the space in in the face of public outcry. I think there is a distinct possibility there, but the as opposed to one um, the one mitigating factor or the, or the one factor Centrica has on its side is the massive disruption that's been in this market over the past two or three years with suppliers failing left, right, and centre. If mm. um, Centrica, as it has today. It talks about the, the levels of investment it's making and the um, the requirement for this a more 
sustainable market, you know, investing in the the rough gas facility so that can somehow mitigate the swings in prices when uh, when spot prices in energy markets go up and down. If it can uh, talk about those kinds of investments, uh, it then becomes a little more difficult to to treat it as uh, political football. Mm. Yeah, that, that rough gas storage uh, station obviously was closed down a few years ago, reopened. Reopened uh, in October last year. Last year, year yeah. And they've invested in it already in increasing capacity and they said today it now uh, has about half of the UK's gas storage. We should talk about the, those other investments as well, though, because it did sort of set out a bit of a, a bit of a strategic plan today as well. Yeah. Uh, a, a decent amount of investment uh, committed for the next few years, or certainly more investment than some analysts had anticipated in terms of what it will be doing and where. Yeah, so the idea with it is, um, as I mentioned earlier, just a more sustainable level of growth. Um, so they are talking about spending between six hundred and eight hundred million pounds a year on and committing half of that to um, projects linked to green taxonomy, so renewables projects or other kind of uh, mitigation to long-term net zero type projects. Um, now, some of this uh, that all sounds very kind of grand and. Um, ESG, you know, there may be some people who listen to this who think straight away, oh, it's woke nonsense. But the the point to it is that um, when you look at plans for home save and where there's been this reliance on gas boilers for years and there will be an eventual switch to heat pumps, then the infrastructure it has, um, a lot of it is going to become outmoded, outdated. So it needs to make these investments as well. Yeah, I, I think as well, they're, they're trying to balance that, of course, with, as you'd expect, with a, a good level of return, but also uh, trying to keep debt to EBITDA below uh, one times, I think, over the medium term as well. So, you know, trying yeah. to probably avoid some of the pitfalls we've seen with other utilities uh, while nonetheless making these investments. And the pitfalls it had itself until a couple of years ago, you know, mm. they're talking about today and this strategy being the end of what's been quite a massive turnaround for the business. You know, it's sold off a bunch of the upstream oil and gas assets, which really did cause massive fluctuations to the results a few years ago. Alex, you have some thoughts on Centrica and in the round, if not these results specifically, maybe a bit of both. Yeah, I mean, I was just, I was partly looking at rewinding to almost exactly a year ago when, um, I mean, we had a government that was sort of essentially on holiday trying to pick the next prime minister um, and but energy market forecasters, as Mike alluded to, were were warning that household energy bills were going to really balloon over the next year. So we already had the windfall tax on on North Sea energy producer profits, of which Centrica, given its gas production, was subject to. Mm. Um, but there, but there was this emerging sort of bear, I suppose, bear point for Centrica shares and other utilities that it was going to be the next in line for um, a super profits tax, which I mean. Judging by the headlines and the coverage of of the results this morning, it, it's very much been taken that it has stepped into a sort of super profits, um, uh, super super profitable um, earning season. Um, of course, with the caveat that, as, as Mike also mentioned, this was uh, the c- recovery of costs from the you know the timing of, of the um, of the standard variable tariff cap. So it, you know it, it's become suddenly the next political uh, football and. Yeah, I also wouldn't be surprised if if there are um, some moves to um, 
you know, potentially check its its profitability. I mean, that all said, part of this, you know, is kind of it, it, it's its profits today are sort of a reflection of the slightly awkward, slightly messy regulatory off you know off gem um, setup we have in the in the in the UK, um, and. I think I think the, the the other the other point I, I suppose from a from a shareholder's perspective is to almost look past some of these some of these swings and to what they're saying today is is you know quite compelling from a from an you know investor's perspective. So they're talking about a lot of confidence in in making twenty percent plus returns on on capital, um, and they've got loads of projects that they they've said that they can target. So there is this opportunity to transition to a sustainable equity growth story. I mean, they are priced at a political football um, level. I mean, they're you know they're they're still on single digit earnings, um, even though in the same breath that they you know they're they're more diversified now. They're they're out of the you know the primary energy production, which was a tricky um, legacy operation. Um, but then, you know, they have a, a quite a compelling story to tell as part of the, you know, of the green upskilling of the uh, of the economy. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I, I think on balance, it's, I think it's, I think the the the, the risks are probably worth it in the share price at the moment, um, um, because really, and we come back to this, there's so many industries to talk about. The government has to work with Centrica to to be part of the the energy transition and to, and, and energy security story. So, um, so yeah, it's it's easy to just stare at the headlines and think, okay, huge levy coming. But there is there is an emergent business here, which I think I think looks quite compelling at the current valuation. Is it is it quite similar valuation aside, but is it quite similar to National Grid in that regard? You know, regulated you know business utility that nonetheless with the energy transition. Is, is certainly making noises about being much more of the gro- a growth type business now, rather than a you know dividend mainstay or, or trying to be both. Really. Yeah, I, 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 and, and National Grid was a, a company that we we include in our ideas section. I don't think we're giving too much away to say um, last month. I think the 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 strength of the National Grid story is that they're now kind of half of the business is focused on on North America and the the eastern mm. uh, seaboard. So, you know, from a from a kind of uh, our profits okay um uh story you you would probably back businesses based in america um re- you know r- uh relative to the uk in that sense it's good and also you've got the inflation reduction act in in the us which is this huge potential tailwind um to to the investments they're they're planning on making there um maybe given the sort of gas legacy infrastructure that that Centrica has and national grid the infrastructure is a little bit kind of future proof um compared compared with that um there's a you, you know you can make a case for um valuing their assets a little bit more highly um but yeah they're kind of both part of the same story um that is potentially emerging from businesses which a lot of investors overlooked in recent years mm. michael on the centrica valuation you know is that is that a fair assessment from your point of view that the super normal profits may be ending in one regard but there's growth potential there yeah i think so so um i don't know whether this should be the opportunity i take to blow my own trumpet <laughs> i mentioned last year's idea when it was uh kind of just after the russia's invasion and at that time i think they were priced at 77p so they were up 70 odd percent since then um and so maybe a less compelling 
case now than they were then. But I think there are two other things to consider. One is that it it is at the it seems at the, at the end of one part of its lifespan when its valuation was really battered because it was a bad company. Um, they one of the things mentioned this morning is the services arm. You know, got seven thousand people out um, fitting gas boilers, etc. At the moment, so obviously, they're training some of those people to do heat pumps and other. Uh, and other things that will help towards a green transition. That's lost money for years, but has actually turned a profit in the first half of this year. So, yeah, even that side of the business, the the side with which people have the most day-to-day contact, and sometimes that contact isn't always satisfactory, yeah. even that is, well, from Centrica's point of view, doing quite well at the moment. Yeah, but overall, it's the, it's the position of strength, really. It's the fact that it has a quarter of households, uh, eight, it's good at customer service. I, it's not a great thing you can say about many utilities companies, and most of us have horror stories in dealing with them. But um, one of the reasons why it's become the kind of default choice is because it's geared up for it, um, and it served customers reasonably well at a time of big upheaval in the market. And I think that makes people less... Uh, Having been scarred by some of this, it makes them less willing to jump again uh, for the because I know there's an argument that as uh, the government tries to in- encourage switching again as the market normalises, that that's a threat to them. Uh, I know Chris O'Shea obviously said that he thinks it's an opportunity, but I do think, uh, given what's happened in the last couple of years, it will probably win as much new business as it loses in that front. Yeah, I think there's definitely be some people who would. You know, be averse to British gas, but as you said, the the pool of options is thinning, and, and mm. it might make them think, well, bigger is better. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I was certainly one who was. Uh, I was with bulb for my sins, and now I've been moved over, and I haven't had a functioning uh, uh, electricity meter for a year. But that's a that's a non gas <laughs> different story for me to complain about on a different podcast. Uh, let's talk about something entirely different now. Our cover story uh, that we're going to stay with you, Mike, because you wrote it. Uh, one of the big market narratives. Uh, of the past couple of years, although in some cases people have only kind of woken up to it in the, in the past few months, perhaps, uh, is luxury goods stocks and, you know, the uh, luxury goods companies, all these, you know, heritage names, they tend to be European listed. Uh, talk us through sort of the piece and sort of the thinking behind it and the context to that, first of all. Sure, yeah. Well, as you just mentioned, uh, um, there's some additional reporting on this by my colleague Mitch, Labiak Mitch, mm. looked at the... Um, uh, some of the demographics that have shaped this over the years, and you know, the, it's not too difficult to find stories in the press on wealth inequality and the growth of that. Um, and it's sort of really taking that and thinking, well, if there is wealth equality inequality, and it's it's seemingly not something that looks like it's being fixed anytime soon where is the upside where do you benefit from this as an investor and luxury goods seem like quite an obvious place to look um when you when i started looking into it and you looked at some of the long-term trends by the, the consultants like bain and deloitte and bcg and others um have mapped out for this industry it's grown um pretty much double the rate of global gdp for the last 25 years or so and the forecasts up until 2030 are for pretty much the same thing. 
and as I say, these companies, you know, have done fantastically well in a lot of cases. Mm. Uh, talk us through some of the the big names. I'm sure people recognise them, whether they're investors or not, just by you know the power of the brands. But so talk us through who those are, and then we can kind of go on to individual prospects. But. Sure, yeah. So um, LVMH, uh, Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy, to give it its full title, um, is the real kind of powerhouse in this market. It is. Uh, it has been a big consolidator. It's got a market cap of over 400 billion euros. Um, and what it has done and why it's so well liked by analysts is that it has two principal engines in the business. One is a Louis Vuitton brand. The other one is a Dior brand. And they have been these kind of amazing cash generating machines for it which has then allowed it to um, to pick up other brands along the way to use to to reuse that cash to spot potential bargains and bring in other brands and it really has been the kind of behemoth of the industry really um, similarly caring uh, which owns the Gucci brand has has operated in a similar sort of way snapping up businesses along the way too and the structural growth kind of trends are still in place. I think it's fair to say, as you mentioned, Mitch wrote about that as part of the piece. You know, there's still sizable markets which are growing. Certainly, emerging markets, for example, you know, more people as more people enter the middle class and upper middle classes, more people are able to afford these. Uh, in some cases, very expensive products. Yep. Uh, that said, you know, we have seen in recent weeks or the last couple of weeks some of these share prices come off a bit because. I mean, it's a similar case of, you know, perhaps the, that super normal growth slowing slightly. Uh, LVMH just the other day, a couple of other examples as well. Yeah, so um, one of the amazing things, I think, about the industry since the pandemic, really, or was that it didn't slow down during the pandemic. If anything, it picked up. Uh, China... The, as you talked about the demographics, Chinese buyers before the pandemic were about a third of the market and that market pretty much closed overnight. But then when you had scores of people in the US sat there with stimulus checks burning a hole in the pocket, that they became the replacement for that. And the growth continued and was even stronger over the last couple of years. Uh, but as that has unwound this year, that has kind of hit, well, that's been the main concern with... LVMH and Richemont and some of the other companies that have filed results recently that um, although China is now bouncing back, the um, the US market is pretty much flattening off. I suppose, there's a, I suppose there might be a question about uh, China's bounce back as well, given the lack of bounce back from its reopening we've seen in other quarters. Uh, you know, I suppose I'm thinking of tourism to an extent, but also commodities. People expected a big bounce, though they didn't happen luxury are people still expecting an increase as a result of you know i suppose more travel and things like that is that still something that can be not guaranteed but you know relied upon to an extent yeah well in luxury it is still really strong you're talking um having looked through quite a lot of the analyst notes on this um they're talking about 20 percent or so growth sales growth this year uh from from chinese customers within china and also within the greater asia area so you know Anyone who's ever been to Hong Kong or Macau in the last decade won't have failed to notice the massive amounts of boutiques, the same brands having eight or nine stores within 
pretty small locations and maybe we don't see as many Chinese tourists coming back to London yet and the, some of the luxury brands might argue that's because of the changes to the VAT rules um, but it does seem that that revival is happening in other parts of the world. Alex, what are your thoughts on the luxury sector and prospects there, or certainly from a from an investor's perspective at this moment, given the big run-up? Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's such an interesting sector because I mean, as, as Mike sort of alluded to there, it's, the air is so rarefied at the top of this tree that you're you're talking about kind of business models and um, I suppose valuation cases which are sitting on quite disconnected stories to the broader economy. So I suppose at the level of a Burberry or uh, which um, I know Jen's sort of covered earlier this year, you're, you know, they may be having to play in, in, in the field where, um, uh, you know, price architecture, the vagaries of the retail cycle, um, uh, you know, China being open or not open for business have a, a, a more sort of material effect on, on earnings and sales. I mean, when you get up to a company like Hermes, which I think, you know, we're not mentioned, but um, along with LVMH has been the other complete star s- story in this sector over the last decade. You just have an, you just have a, an unreal business, with, which I can't really think of any parallels. It, it, to me, it's a little bit like if, you know, there was one company in the world which owned the only diamond mine in the world and there's massive demand for diamonds. So... You know their waiting list for its products, which you know in the core division, sort of core business, doesn't doesn't really change the kind of product cycle. Doesn't really change that much. Um, you've got you know you've got an, a price insensitive repeat and global customer base. Where you know if you know uh, Russian, you know the Russian elites are no longer able to travel very very easily. It doesn't matter at all because you've got you know you've got hundreds of people queuing up to to pay you know well over the odds for their products um and i mean it explains why i think it's the most highly valued company in this space it's also one of the most uh well well followed despite that it's some it's on something like 46 or i think you send the piece maybe 47 times forward earnings but it it has this dynamic which you just do not see anywhere else in 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 other sectors whereby it can basically maintain a kind of 20, 22% operating profit growth each year and a 40% operating profit margin and kind of mandate that. So it just moves it just moves at that pace, kind of um, throttles sales growth appropriately. Um, so they choose kind of who's buying the product. And if you sort of, ex, you know, ex, ex, extrapolate that 10 years into the future, then, you know, it falls to a kind of nine times earnings business. Like we definitely shouldn't be looking at the the you know stock prices. The stock price is going to be in twenty thirty because that's that's probably too far away. Uh, and I think there are risks with businesses like this. You know, there's huge family concentration in the in the shareholding, um, uh, and there are always risks to brand and brand equity. But you know that explains why people would still buy them at this kind of you know price, which is almost as much as uh, you know seems almost exorbitant as a Birkin bag. So one, uh, I asked, obviously, why uh, Hermes is so fabulously much more expensive than anything else in this sector. Uh, One of the analysts made the point that um, it's principally leather goods that they do. They don't do jewellery, they don't do shoes, they don't do things that are prone to cycles of fashion. 
They do leather, which is one size. It's standard for everybody, and it has tremendous margins. So, mm. and, it, and it's never changed, as you say, and as you say in the piece, Mike, mm. the same thing they've been selling for years. So, you know, Pretty much the same range, yeah. Nice, nice work if you can get it. Indeed, yeah. Uh, let, let's end on Burberry. Uh, Jen, who's here as well, as you say, Alex did write about Burberry uh, a couple of months ago, but Mike, you touch on it briefly at the end of the piece. You know, given the context of you know these high valuations and maybe some slightly tougher times in the US market, we look at, you know, where the best value is. But let's stick with Burberry for now. How do you see uh, their fortunes? You know, this has been a, a laggard somewhat of the of the European story in recent years. It has, yeah. And Jen pointed much of this out in the piece as well. But um, part of the reason for that was its brand's overexposure. One of the, um, the point Alex just made about Hermes almost tailoring its growth um, because it knows it can set levels of supply and demand seems completely um, inelastic. But uh, with Burberry, it was almost the opposite, really. The distribution got away from it. Its products started to appear everywhere. It was it lost its cachet as a brand, and it has quite a lot of um, of fashion. Uh, it has a big fashion component to its to its whole product mix. So if that loses its luster, then you're really starting to struggle. You end up with uh, a lot of the ranges in outlet stores. It's being sold on the cheap, and it takes a long time to try to to rebuild that um, that brand prestige really in a market like this. And we're not necessarily saying it's going to be you know a new LVMH gen, but uh, welcome to the show. But you. Uh, Nonetheless, you know, there are signs of uh, better times to come there with Burberry. Yeah, I would say so. And as Mike was kind of saying a, a minute ago, it's with a lot of the luxury brands, it's about heritage uh, and kind of still trading on this um, heritage tradition. Uh, and Burberry, yeah, for a bit did um, become associated with kind of with, um, you know, hooliganism. Um and someone, I can't remember who, but someone called it the ultimate, the Burberry check, the iconic Burberry check, uh, called it the ultimate symbol of nouveau riche naff, which is if you're a luxury brand, completely not uh, what you want written about you or said about you or thought about you, really. Um, so I don't think Burberry is going to become an LVMH overnight, but it certainly does have a few products that still have this heritage, prestige, the raincoats um, being one of them. And I think particularly, um, yeah, they've got a new creative director um, who is kind of working to to build the brand back up. And I think as the decades kind of wear on from... Um, yeah, when Burberry was this overexposed, uh, you know, kind of negative associations brand, it will, especially in other markets outside of Europe, start to regain some of that prestige if current management plays its cards right. Um, it's nowhere near, yeah, the, especially the the kind of French fashion houses um, are nearly un, untouchable there, really. So your Hermes, your LVMH. But Burberry is going to... Um, it's going to have a go and a lot relies on, I think, uh, spending, luxury spending in China continuing to uh, to grow, which is obviously not a, not a given at this point. Mm. Yeah, and those new collections as well, I think, as you say in the piece, Mike, in, out in September, 
it seems. So that will be the first test of that new uh, new range as well. Other luxury good collections are available as well. Well, indeed, of course. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I have no idea the, the relative merits of these things in terms of the actual uh, uh, products themselves. But uh, that is our cover story this week. Uh, do check it out if that has piqued your interest. But we should move on because time is getting on. Uh, another FTSE 100 company now, St. James's Place, uh, Alex. Now, again, this is a company in my kind of past life. I covered quite closely, and uh, I'm sure many of our listeners will know it as well, the wealth manager. Uh, you know, it certainly has a lot of clients. It certainly puts a lot of uh, effort into marketing. And, you know, it, from a financial perspective, it's done very well over a long period of time. Had its half-year results today, and the fly in the ointment really, f- from investors' point of view, is, it seems, not least the, the problems that all asset managers, wealth managers, are facing at the moment with difficult markets, but also new regulations are forcing it to uh, scale back its uh, premium fees somewhat, shall we say. Yeah, so, I, I mean, maybe it's just uh, it's kind of useful to kind of almost dovetail a previous discussion on luxury with with um, with St. James, because they are in some ways, the, you know, the luxury wealth manager. They are, as well as being, you know, having a lot of clients and, and being the largest wealth manager, there is a kind of prestige heritage brand to, to being a client of uh, St. James. And it has kind of almost defied expectations for a long time in its ability to, to keep um, uh, you know, customer funds and those clients very sticky. Um, you know, there are some great economic moats to to wealth managers because you know there are sort of you know kind of high either psychologically entrenched switching costs um, to to for their clients to move. You know, how do I know if I another provider is going to be better or you know my wealth manager is going to understand me as well um, or they're going to be a marquee name, whatever. Um, uh, which uh, St. James has been able to hang on to. So the big news today, is, as you alluded to, is their anticipation. They're trying to get ahead of the FCA's consumer duty, uh, which we've talked about a couple of times on the podcast. And uh, in in doing so, they've taken um, this quite chunky hit, £859 pound, uh, million pounds to their sort of assessment of their what's known as the European embedded value. We can sort of park that to the side for a minute. Um, because what they are hoping to do is anticipate one of the potential avenues of this consumer duty regulation, which is um, the fees you're charging to uh, long-term, long-term loyal customers. Their solution to this is to, uh, is to basically, re- they, what they've said is reward clients with long-term investments through the introduction of an annual product management cap on bond and pension investments after they've been invested with us for 10 years. So that's 85 basis points, um, which, you know, I, I think for some people would say that's quite high already. Um, but that cap in it, it, you know, in itself has taken a big chunk out of their future earnings already. So, um, so yeah, it's either, de- depending on your perspective, it's either sort of drawn a line under things or maybe open a, open a can of worms for how they navigate this brave new world of um, consumer protections for, um, for everything financial services. Yeah, I, I think that's that latter aspect is probably the fear and maybe part of the reason as much as the move itself as to why shares are down 15% because, I mean, they, they say themselves that... Uh, uh, what do they say? They say the consumer duty, you know, is an ongoing requirement, and as such, we should expect there to be further changes identified over time, resulting um, from this enhanced standard of care. So that does imply more moves could be on the way, albeit maybe not as big as this one. But yeah, 
I mean, I, I, I still personally don't really understand the consumer duty in, in, and I don't think anyone truly does in how it's going to be applied. But I definitely don't understand um, why 10 years has been sort of determined at the point at which you'd, you'd like to start rewarding loyalty. Because, I mean, it's just it's an arbitrary number. I'm sure they have their their reasons and they're saying 65,000 clients are going to get immediate benefit from this but if I you know if I'd been invested with St James Place for, for eight years I would be saying well why not me I mean I'm is, is that not loyal enough for you and then where do you you know where do you draw the line I suppose so um it, this is a crack in St James's armour really you know critics have long accused of it of being very opaque on pricing and if the you know the consumer duty is going to be heavily enforced and inject kind of transparency for all consumers, I, I sort of really I do struggle to see how this can't be a challenge for you know their particular business model. Um, it explains why the shares are down fifteen percent today. Yeah, and they they used to say as well. And I think most people in the industry would agree that uh, or, you know most companies in the industry because they've been making similar noises uh, along the lines of what you just said about the the difficulty understanding how this will play out. I mean, SJP say the subjective nature of the consumer duty regulation also presents a challenge to all firms as the expectation of leading practice will only become clearer over time. I mean, I think the FCA does like to do this sometimes where it kind of says, well, it's up to you, but we will penalise you if you get it wrong in an effort to <laughs> encourage yeah. people to to go too far. And and the FCA thinks that's better than, than the opposite. But that does also mean people are feeling their way through and they don't really have any idea of how hard they may be cracked down upon. Exactly, yeah. Stage. I mean, by, by booking this charge now, it's kind of, it, it, it probably has, it's, it has changed the conversation it, itself. You know, you, regulation is formed sometimes in the, in the sort of back and forth between what, um, what you know, companies are going to do and also what the regulator wants them to do. So they'll be hoping this is kind of, you know, they've, they've met them halfway, but... Um, but yeah, it, it, it's it's. I, I think it's hard to see this not resulting in more bad news mm. further down the line. Well, they say you know it should help client retention as well. You know, making these offers. But the fact is, despite uh, many trade journalists expecting otherwise for a long time, yeah. their client retention has long been very good. They say you know the top of the latest figures, it's still ninety five point six percent. So you know it's hard to improve much on that figure anyway. But uh, maybe that's a silver lining for them. Yeah. We'll see. Final segment of today's show, though, our final FTSE 100 company is one that reported yesterday, and that is GSK. Uh, we've spoken about them before a few months ago. Uh, yesterday, though, figures, Jen, guidance raised, looking like a decent set of uh, numbers there. Yeah, absolutely. It is looking like a decent set of numbers, but with a couple of caveats. Um the things that are driving sales are the things that have been driving GSK sales for quite a while now. It's the Shingles Jab, Shingrix, and it's HIV franchise. Um, so that really hasn't changed. Um, this is one thing to note, though, with as you know, kind of the nature of of the pharmaceutical industri industry is such that if you're a company that doesn't have a very stocked pipeline, it's going to take you decades, realistically, just because, you know, trials take time, regulatory review takes time. And so it was only a year ago, really, that GSK hived off Hallian and said, you know, we're now focused on vaccines and kind of specialty pharmaceutical drugs. Um, so 
this turnaround isn't going to happen overnight. And the thing that investors need to be aware of is, you know, coming patent cliffs. So when drugs lose exclusivity uh, and generics come to the market, this is just something that's if you're looking at GSK today uh, and you're thinking, oh, this is cheap, which it is, I think um, shares are trading on um, afford PE for the full year of less than 10 times, which is a lot lower uh, than kind of comparable pharmaceutical companies that tend to be more around 16, 17 times. Um, so, yes, it's one in the short term, GSK is clearly doing well. An upgrade to guidance is always a good sign. Uh, but the longer term problems that we've kind of been warning about really for, for a while haven't gone away and aren't going to go away rapidly. That said, it's clearly a, a company that has a greater vision for itself. Its chief executive is, you know, doing a kind of good job of articulating that vision, getting rid of the consumer healthcare division made sense for the company. So there are signs that things are moving in the right direction, but it's going to be somewhat touch and go for a little while, I think. Yeah, it's a, a nascent turnaround story, it's fair to say, you know, given as you touch on, you know, it's struggle, certainly relative, the obvious comparator is AstraZeneca, you know, the other uh, FTSE 100 peer, which has been going great guns by comparison in recent years. That said, you know, the, these things do, comes in, do come in uh, fits and starts. Uh, the other issue for GSK, as we have mentioned before, and was maybe reflected yesterday in the lack of share price movement, despite these, you know, good results, guidance being uh, raised on a number of fronts, is the the Zantac mm. issue, the overhang. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, despite better operational performance, the, the lack of share price movies, people are worried about this, this, you know, litigation risk from this, um, the Zantac yeah. issue, basically. Definitely. And that's not something that is going to vanish overnight. I think there have been a few positive signs recently. Uh, a judge in Florida threw out some claims last December. GSK settled out of court with another plaintiff in California last month. So there are signs that this is moving in a decent direction for GSK. But I think purely because of the complexity, the size of, of this legal action is obviously massive. The complexities of the US legal system, uh, it is very difficult to say with any real confidence how this is going to to go um you know there have been provisions made for kind of further out of court settlements what you really don't want if you're a gsk investor is uh these cases kind of going to trial because that's where the real liabilities start to stack up um so yeah there are i think there's valid reason to still be concerned but uh, again things are moving or appear to have moved in the right direction with some of the the cases being thrown out yeah, uh, I suppose we should say for people who aren't aware, this is you know the heartburn drug that was at one stage the biggest selling drug in the world in in sort of mid late nineties. Uh, but now, you know, as you've uh, alluded to, facing a GSK is facing a massive lawsuits in the US on various uh, different mm. levels uh, over allegations about side effects from from Zantac. Uh, in terms of its future, though, uh, as well as the shingles vaccine, the HIV uh, set of treatments. You know, there's been some progress there as well. There's been, I think, another one of uh, those was uh, approved in the EU this week is already uh, being sold in the US. Is that really where uh, investors should be looking when they're looking at future growth prospects for GSK? Is that is that the area of biggest potential growth? Um, 
I think at least in the short term, it clearly is. Um, in the longer term, it's sort of hard to say and really dependent on the way that, you know, the various clinical trials that, that they have in the pipeline go. Um, but again, be wary of the fact that this is concentrated in one um, disease area and it is because of the kind of number of HIV drugs available, um, because this is not kind of a, a disease that is expanding in patient population terms as, you know, cancers or dementia are. Um, yeah, you would kind of imagine that the longer term reliance on growth in the HIV franchise um, is not likely to drive the company to longer term success. I think probably longer term they're looking at vaccines. They also had an RSV, that's the uh, respiratory virus um, vaccine approved recently. Um, obviously, they missed the boat on the COVID vaccine. Um, so, yeah, it does have to diversify into kind of other disease areas. When you mentioned AstraZeneca, obviously, the huge advantage that they have is they make a number of different cancer treatments and they sort of understand that treating, you know, treating cancer is really treating 200 different diseases. So they have this specialism and subspecialisms within that. So that's a real advantage for them that GSK just doesn't have. And if it wants to, you know, continue to grow or even compete with AstraZeneca at some point, it has got to, um, got to diversify. Thank you very much. That does bring us to the end of the show. We packed in a lot today. So thank you to everyone. Thank you to Alex. Thank you to Mike. Thank you to Jen. And thank you to you for listening. We will see you next time on another Companies and Markets show.